Welcome to another episode of the In The Limelight podcast. I'm Clarissa Burt, founder of In The Limelight Media, where we enlighten, entertain, and educate our listeners. You are tuned in to HealthWise 360 with Christy Cordingly. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to this episode of HealthWise 360, a creation of Clarissa Burt, founder of In The Limelight Media. I'm your show host, Chrissy Cordingly, and you'll be able to see this interview on In The Limelight TV, which is distributed on Roku, Amazon Fire, Apple TV, and 100 other smart TV apps. The audio version of this interview can be heard wherever you listen to your podcasts. And today I'm thrilled to be interviewing Andrew Culkin. Andrew is the author of Amanda, A Cautionary Tale. This book details how his wife succumbed sadly to alcoholism in February 2020 and demonstrates how Andrew is dedicated to helping families understand, identify and cope with the alcoholic and mentally ill loved one. He's spoken at several rehab facilities in Southern California as a guest speaker, sharing his unique perspective and no-nonsense approach to dealing with this horrific disease. So, Andrew, thank you so much for joining me today to share your story. Thank you, Chrissy. Glad, glad to be here. Yeah, welcome. I, I wanted to start off with, I imagine like many chronic illnesses, the signs would start quite subtly. So tell me a little bit about your life with Amanda. What was it like in the beginning? And when did you start to realize that there was a problem? Yeah, that's one of the reasons, the whole core reasons why I even started this entire project and, and wrote the book is, is to help people understand uh, where it comes from. And to because I was woefully ignorant of this disease. And it starts very slowly. I mean, in the early days, we had a very good relationship. We had our own brokerage. We worked together. We, we were insurance brokers. Uh, and during the day, we did a lot of driving around and we had sales quotas and there was a lot of stress. So Amanda would come home and in the early days, she drank, you know, a bottle of wine, which is 0.750, just a regular bottle of wine almost every day. And she created this habit over the years. Uh, and eventually that 0.750 bottle became 1.75 liters of wine a day, which is about two and a half bottles. And it was, uh, you know. Looking from the sidelines, it was a very gradual progression, and I just thought it was the way that she could relax at the end of her day, and it was just became part of her. Mm -hmm. uh, I also thought it was a cultural thing because her family was from Canada, <laughs> and her, her family all drank wine. You know, I, I was, you know, my family didn't drink wine. We, my dad drank some beers, and I didn't really alcohol wasn't really part of my life. Uh, it was never a big part of my life. So I was woefully ignorant of all this. Uh, and slowly, uh, we were married in 94. And by 2010, she was drinking, you know, a couple liters of wine every day. And it was starting to affect her life physically, emotionally, and, you know, every other way. You know, it was a person. Wow. Just just one second. I have to take a drink of water. I apologize, Andrew. Go ahead. They'll edit, the, they'll edit this out. <laughs> First time for a tickle in my throat. Okay. <clears throat> okay. Perfect. Great. What's dry? Yeah, I did. We said that earlier. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I am Canadian, so <laughs> I kind of giggled a little bit when you said, "Well, she's from Canada. She drinks it." But uh, wine is actually quite socially acceptable, right? And there's even mm -hmm. some. Uh, doctors or medical people that will even say a glass of wine is good for your heart. So it, right. it, it's, a it, glass. it that a would glass be good, right? a glass, <laughs> a glass a day is good not, for your not, heart. Not a, a glass. Yeah. Like, 
so um, back to the seriousness. So how did that really start to affect your relationship going forward once you started noticing the incremental changes over time? Well, I mean, initially I was always concerned because I, I knew that drinking that much volume of alcohol is going to have an effect on your body. I mean, you know, it had affected her weight. She gained quite a bit of weight as a result. Uh, she began to get into car accidents. You know, oh. she, flipped, she flipped the truck over when she, my son was about five years old. Uh, we had a, uh, it was an F-150 and she flipped it over. It was a rainy night. She flipped the whole truck upside down. Uh, and luckily she was able to get away from the scene and get back to our house. And I, I went to the scene and uh, somehow she got away with it. Um, she was definitely liberated. Um, that was the, one of the first real big telling signs that uh, this was out of control. The fact that she was going to the grocery store on a rainy night by herself and didn't tell anybody. Um, but the, the, how it affected the relationship, it affected it in every way. Um, it becomes no longer a husband-wife relationship. It changes the whole dichotomy of the relationship. I become her overseer to some mm -hmm. extent. I mean, you, you have to manage someone. You get to the point where you're spending all your time managing these persons, making sure she's not getting in her own way. I have to protect, I had to protect Amanda from herself uh, and make sure she wasn't, you know, driving. I had, you know, I had to hide keys. Eventually I had to hide bank accounts, ATM cards. I had to remove her from any element of being able to get alcohol. Uh, and that became a full-time job and it became more of a, uh, you know, a father-daughter relationship almost, uh, which is sad, you know. And it affects, it affects the friendship, you know, the friendship dissolves, you know, and you're just trying to maintain uh, a family. You know? I would imagine that the disease probably didn't allow her to see it for what it was as protection and love for her. She probably took it as something very different yeah, through I mean, the lens did. of her disease. Right. You build up resentment. I'm sure on her side, it was resentment. I was, you know, you're trying to control me. Uh, I'm trying to protect you from yourself. And, you know, that was before it really got crazy. Uh, mm -hmm. The last seven or eight years, I mean, we're talking four DUIs. She was arrested out of our house many times. Uh, there were times where she would go to the grocery store and we didn't know where she was for three days. She, she would just disappear. Uh, and then, you know, uh, there's a couple of times where she went, she was in the middle of cooking and she said she needed to get something to finish the dinner. And he went to the grocery store and uh, we didn't see her for three days. Uh, and, I, you know, the police eventually called me and said they found her in a park, passed out, and that they took her to the emergency room. And, you know, she was she almost died that day. <laughs> oh, <my. laughs> uh, and, and these became almost regular occurrences for the last seven or eight years of her life. It was complete uh, pandemonium uh, near the end. Mm -hmm. I, I can't even I yeah, can't even down. imagine. I don't even know how I survived it, you know, really. Yes. The last few years. And your and your children too, right? So we have we have one son, you know, and he was uh, that's one of the reasons why I really wanted to keep the family together until he at least finished high school. Mm -hmm. uh, and he was 18 in 2018 and it's another story. Yeah. <laughs> no, right. uh, I mean, I wanted to keep the family together. I mean, she was a, the thing is she was a very nice person. This this is the of course, difficult her. She was always uh, very apologetic. Um, she had, you know, a huge heart of gold. When we were younger, you know, we always had animals. She was a big animal lover, 
So she'd walk around the house and the dogs and cats would just follow her around the house <laughs> when she walked. I mean, you, you can't lie to an animal. They understand the emotions and the energy that a person permeates. You know? mm -hmm. So that was it was all part of the problem because she was a very lovely person, you know, but she had this horrible disease. She was sick. Absolutely. So what do you think caused Amanda to go down this road? What was her core issue that you think caused her to drink? You know, I think the core issue, you have to go way back. Um, I think it, it goes back to, like anybody, it goes back to their childhood. Um, she was very different than her family. Uh, she was very outgoing and bubbly. Her family, I mean, I don't really want to get into that too much, but emotionally, they were very, very even. Uh, very unemotional for the most mm -hmm. part. And we always used to laugh. <clears throat> if you ever watched the, the show, uh, The Munsters, <laughs> back in the 60s. Yeah. They had one daughter who was a pretty blonde daughter, and they always called her the weird one. <laughs> well, anybody watching the show, she was the normal one. Okay, so we used to say she was the pretty girl from The Munsters, <laughs> from her family. But she was very different from her family, and I think it affected her emotionally. I think there was feelings of inadequacy, uh, that resulted from her childhood or never never uh, being enough for people. Uh, and I think the alcohol began to mask that. I think it's worth, you know, in in cahoots with the pressure of being a broker, um, you know, both those things, I think, added to her beginning to drink on a daily basis. It was to hide inadequacy and to just deal with the, the stresses and strains of everyday living, you know? Like, I think that's how it starts for most people. Yeah, to numb, right? It's, you can have right. some very difficult feelings that can be very hard to face, so you can use these substances as a source of numbing, and unfortunately, alcohol is so societally acceptable, right? It's, right. it's a normal thing to have, you know, a drink when you're stressed or to, you know, relieve tension or go out with friends and have a few drinks. It's, it's quite common. How did, did she, was there any time where she did actively try to participate in her recovery? Yeah. Well, she actually went to seven rehabs. Oh, wow. Um, the rehab started after her. Uh, I think she got two DUIs. This would have been around 2014. She got two back to back. Uh, in fact, <clears throat> Uh, she had a BMW X5. They impounded that. And while they impounded that, I went and got a rental car. Uh, and that night she took the rental car and we didn't see her for a couple of days. And she got another DUI almost the same week. And I realized it's, it's time. Yeah. <laughs> um, you're not going to, you're either not going to live with us anymore. You're going to have to go find something, something else to do, or you're going into a rehab. And we, you know, she went into a rehab and it worked very well for a while. Um, the problem that I have with rehabs, <clears throat> I don't know if you want to go down that road, but yeah, let's do it. Is, is the they're they're wonderful. They really are. I mean, you have thirty, sixty, or ninety days, depending how long a person stays there, and they, you know, they have an emotional support. You you're able to um, you have counselors. You're able to expose everything that, that's wrong. You're also taking a vacation from your life and from the alcohol itself. So when you come out. You're really you're re-entering the person that you were, which which is wonderful. So when you're released, you're really back to where you were maybe years prior. The only problem is is that there's no checks and balances. There's really no follow-up. So a person can really easily fall right back into the same steps they were. Um, 
now they give you a list of AA meetings that you can attend and maybe, you know, a suggest an accountability partner, you know, albeit uh, a, uh, you know, someone who can, you can talk to if you're having issues, mm-hmm. but you have to do the work. You have to continue to do the work. You have to go to the meetings. And, and she never did that. She never took that seriously. So generally, whenever she left a rehab, she was back, you know, sitting on the couch, passed out with a bottle of wine in front of her when I came home from work within three to four weeks of leaving any of the rehabs just because she never did the work. No, very, very sad. I would, I would almost like to think of it almost like re-entry, right? So you graduate this program, then you go back home, but now all the same triggers, all the same environment is still there, right? The stress that was there before it's all there waiting for you when you get back and it takes a transformation and a willingness to, but it can be very hard for people. So, well, the disease takes over. You, you, you can't. It's very difficult to get out of the same patterns. Yes. Um, Thirty days or, or ninety days is not enough to, uh, you know, it's not enough separation for those patterns. Rehab's really just a band aid. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to just rip that band aid off again and go right back to where you were. You know, this is one of the things uh, that I'm. I want rehabilitation facilities to have more accountability. Um, they only have a five to ten percent, five to ten percent success rate, uh, and this is this is not good enough. This is basically I call it a ninety to ninety-five percent failure rate. So they have a revolving door, which gives them pretty much a, a pretty is a, is a business model. It's it's uh, you're going to have some repeat business, <laughs> <laughs> which is which is you know defeating the purpose of why you exist in the begin with to begin with. Mm-hmm. I think checks and balances have to be in place. Maybe, um, you know, monetary compensation for people who are successful. Maybe the rehab could be compensated somehow. If someone doesn't, uh, is, it, you know, is successful for two, three, four, five years down the road. Mm-hmm. You have to look into those kind of things. Different incentives, for sure. Different incentives. Yeah. And now you actually go into rehab facilities and do speaking. Do you speak with the staff and the managers and help them create some ideas for success? Or do you work with the patients or, or a combination well, of both? Generally, how it started was when Amanda went to the rehab, we had family. It was called a family weekend. So near the end of a person's stay, the family will come in and uh, spend two days counseling with the patient. And you have to realize most people are flying in from all over the country or even all over the world. The ones in Palm Springs, a lot of these people are from back east, maybe Canada, they're even from Europe, and they would fly in because generally you want to separate the person completely from their environment. Mm-hmm. We were actually one of the closer ones because Palm Springs is about an hour from where we live. Um, but I would speak after she died. They, they let me speak at the, at the family weekend and tell my story, Amanda's story. And then from there, I spoke at a couple other local ones. And then uh, one of the outpatient facilities that she that she was at for about six months, I, I spoke there, I think, three times. But then I, I wrote the book and, and, you know, I'm doing podcasts. So you have a much bigger audience than mm-hmm. maybe 40 or 50 people. I, I'd much rather be able to speak to 40 or 50,000 than 40 or 50 people. Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. But I'm sure you had an impact on people you were able to directly connect with as well. It's a different type of connection for sure. Absolutely. So how do you think your wife's story, like, how do you feel about that and sharing the story? How do you feel it helps other alcoholics and other families of alcoholics? Well, the number one takeaway that I want to do with 
everything that I'm doing is I want families to understand and recognize that a person has an issue, that they're either uh, they're either an alcoholic already or they're in serious. Yeah, they're, they're going down the road of becoming an alcoholic and being able to identify that because alcoholism is a disease. OK, similar to cancer or heart disease. Mm -hmm. Now, if you if you catch cancer, if it's in stage one, you have a much better chance of surviving. It's the same thing with alcoholism. If you have a, if you catch somebody who's in the early stages, they have a much better chance of recovery. Uh, it may be some, someone is drinking because of a situation. Maybe somebody died or they had a divorce and they're drinking because of that. Well, they have a much better chance than somebody who's been uh, drinking two liters of wine for 10 years. Uh, Amanda, I would say, by the time we started sending her to rehab, she was already in stage four. Um, the chances of her survival, looking back, were probably less than 5%, which is similar to a cancer patient who is at stage four. It's very similar. And you can you can equate those two diseases uh, in very much the same way. The earlier you catch someone, the better chance they have of survival. It's better for the family. It's better for the loved ones. It's really when someone's an alcoholic, the whole family is an alcoholic. Okay, it's not mm -hmm. just the alcoholic that has the disease. The whole family is suffering from this disease, especially when you have a close loved one, like a child or a wife or a spouse. That's you know that's it's affecting everyone in that in that family. Can I ask if it's not too personal, how did her story finally end? Well, she died. You know, yeah. I, you know, how she, basically she was in her seventh rehab and my son, I dropped him off at college that fall and we went through Christmas and I was, my son was in college and he was no longer living with us. Uh, and that was the breakoff point for me. I was ready to get a divorce. And I was, I was explaining to Amanda that I, I could no longer be in this situation. Um, so I, I mean, she just, she was just completely out of control drinking. I, so I said, I, I, I dropped her off into a different rehab in Los Angeles that we'd never been to. Mm -hmm. I wanted to get her as far away as possible. And I'd really had enough at this point. It was beyond imagination. Mm -hmm. um, she was there one day and there was a two story building and she fell down two flights of stairs and, you know, broke, broke herself up internally. Uh, she was in the UCLA medical center for four weeks in ICU. Yeah. I mean, her, her bill was over $2 million. You know? Oh my goodness. I mean, so it, it, alcoholism affects a lot of people, <laughs> but her demise was just atrocious. I mean, she went through a horrible, horrible death uh, and horrible pain. Um, she was pretty much in a coma the last week, you know, and then we just called it. Her blood pressure was so low. They said, there's no point in continuing. I go, that's kind of what I told you a couple of weeks before. But um, it was a very sad ending, you know, to a person who was a, a very bright light at one time. Very bright light. Absolutely. And I'm sure that bright light was still in there. And at least now she's free. It's just sad to know that she suffered so much. And she, she was really lucky to have you right. in her life. Um, yeah. So... Uh, now that we have hit sort of this pandemic and I know, you know, restrictions are, are changing every day, but right. the pandemic still is definitely a cause of stress. 
and it has created issues with economy and all sorts of different things. So how has the pandemic created larger issues with alcoholism and related mental health issues? Really since 2020, and Amanda died in February of 2020, the pandemic, the shutdown was literally the week after she passed away. Wow. So, so there's been a 25% increase in alcohol-related deaths since 2020, March of 2020. 25%. 25%. Wow. That, that's death. So the normal rate is about 140,000 in the United States. This is just the United States. So 25%, you know, we're losing almost 200,000 people a year from alcohol-related deaths. That doesn't even include uh, all the other issues, bodily issues, liver cancer. That's up by 20 to 30%. Uh, it's also going to affect the next generation. Um, because there's so many people, there's such an increase in alcoholism. There's a 2.5% increase in alcohol sales, which is unprecedented. It's the most increase in alcohol sales since the end of Prohibition in 1933. Hmm. So the population is is drinking ex, you know, in, incrementally more, and incrementally more, we're having more deaths and more, uh, you know, disease-related things to alcoholism. Uh, and this is an issue. It's only going to get worse uh, because it, it, you know, it destroys families. And people who live in alcoholic families tend to, you know, it, it tends to follow. It, it, it tends to follow into the next generation. Mm-hmm. You know, luckily, just, just to make a kind of a side thing here, is my son is very anti-drinking. He doesn't drink. He doesn't do drugs. Uh, on his 21st birthday, his his friends gave him a bottle of Jack Daniels, mm-hmm. and, and he gave it to me. He goes, Dad, I don't know. I, I would never drink. I don't even know what to do with this thing. Get this thing away from me. And I was like, <laughs> I go, Chris, no problem. No, I don't have any problem with that. Okay. <laughs> it <laughs> must be a good. relief. Yeah. It's a relief. Yeah. He's, he came out well, and I'm happy about that. That's the best thing. Mm-hmm. He has his mother's emotions. You know, he's, he's a very happy kid. Uh, he has all her best parts. And none, none of the worst parts, but as far as the pandemic goes, you know, this is why we need to talk about this. This issue needs to be talked about. Um, it's getting worse, not better. Uh, and this is just alcoholism. And we're not even talking about related mental issues like eating disorders, drug addiction, gambling addictions. These are all related mental health issues. Um, and, and the pandemic is affecting all of these. So this conversation and the story of Amanda is, is uh, you know, couldn't be more germane to what's going on in the world today. And well, I really, really want to spread this. 100%. We're happy to help you do that. Sure. Uh, before we finish, I would love for you to share maybe if someone is trying to come to terms with their own alcoholism or noticing the signs of alcoholism in their family or with their loved ones, what should they be looking for? What advice might you give them to sort of start that journey towards healing and recovery? Well, the first, first thing you have to realize, either a person in themselves or the people around them is, is the habit. If you're drinking, uh, for women, it's like seven drinks a week. If you're drinking more than seven, not, not bottles, but just drinks, you're in serious, you're having an issue. Um, the first thing you can do is either go to an AA meeting, if, it, if it's not too crazy, mm-hmm. if you're not too out of hand, but you need to start going to AA meetings because that's recognized as the number one best way to really handle this disease. Um, if you're 
chronic and you've been drinking for a number of years, it's time to go into a rehabilitation facility uh, where you need a 30-day break from it and you need to get your family involved. You know, so often we see these interventions. Uh, there's a show on television on mm-hmm. intervention, and they get that they finally get their loved one in a room, and they say, you know, we're going to take away this, and we're not going to give you any money. You're not going to be able to live with us anymore. Families need to do that. Um, the biggest problem, that, and when I when I speak at at rehabs, is that families are the biggest contributor sometimes to that person's alcoholism because they're enabling that person. And there's a lot of issues like codependency. I'm sure I was codependent. I mean, it was sometimes it's easier just to give the person alcoholism, alcohol, mm-hmm. uh, rather than dealing with a lot of drama, <laughs> you know, and it's a double-edged sword, you know, cause you're, you're just, you're solving that day's problems, but you're making life harder for yourself and the person ultimately. Mm-hmm. So we, we have to stop being uh, codependent. And we have to stop enabling people. And sometimes I think the hardest relationship is when you have a parent-child relationship. And sometimes you're going to have to watch your child fail. Uh, and that's really the best gift you can give them is, you know, you have to cut them off and you have to let them uh, figure their own life out. Uh, because if you keep giving them money and a place to live, uh you're not helping them. You're just, you're helping them with the disease. Mm -hmm. If you're not willing to get into a rehab facility, then you need to cut them off. That's very difficult. That's the hardest relationship is a parent child relationship. If the child is, has, you know, has this disease, that's the hardest one because you have to, you have to cut that person off. That's very difficult to do as a parent. I'm sure. I, Yes, absolutely. And there is that saying, right? Like sometimes someone has to hit that rock bottom before they can fight for their lives, right? But it does have to come from within. That's where real healing and transformation comes from is when they're ready inside. But if they have the support in the right environment and there's other resources as well for families of alcoholics, there's Al-Anon, right? Which which can help with, yeah. Yeah, There's Al-Anon and that's really, uh, it's it's nice being around like-minded people that have Mm -hmm. shared the same experience. That's a healing process. Yeah. Um, you know, I, 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 my son and I didn't really go through that. Um, I think my Al-Anon was just writing this book and being able to talk about it and share it with other people. Um, you know, I have a Facebook group uh, and I put excerpts of the book in there while I was writing it. And some of the people knew Amanda and I think that that helped myself, mm-hmm. you know, just being able to heal and talk about it and to make an attempt at helping other people that are going through this issue. Mm-hmm. I think that that was, I think I created my own Ellen. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't suggest everybody doing my route, my route, but, <laughs> you know, but, <laughs> but yeah, Ellen is definitely good for families. You, you definitely need that. Perfect. Because, because when, especially when someone passes away, um, you know, there's a lot of emotions that happen when someone passes away from this disease. In, in Amanda's case, in, in a lot of ways, it's sad to say, but it was it was a relief. It was a relief from a lot of stress yes. and just drama and craziness. It was a circus like I couldn't even believe. And it, in a lot of ways, it was like somebody handed my life back and like my son's life back because we mm-hmm. no longer had to deal with this. Uh, and to get to that point is, you know, it's kind of sad. And I don't want people to have to get to the point that uh, that I had to get to. I want, I want I want that to be prevented before we get there. Absolutely. Absolutely. It would have been a very bittersweet type of moment, definitely. And I can see that that would be a very complex emotion to have. 
So I really appreciate you sharing so openly with us. Where can everybody find your book? Well, it's it's coming up. Uh, you can find my website is, uh, you know, amandaacautionarytale.com. Uh, I'm doing pre-orders on that. I also have on Facebook, it would be Amanda A Cautionary Tale. You can join the group. Mm -hmm. uh, I have excerpts. We talk about what I'm doing. I'm working on a TED Talk right now. Uh, hopefully, we'll, hopefully we'll get that. I really want to do that to promote the book and to promote this this whole this whole idea of prevention. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> those, are the, those are the best places. Good for you. Well, congratulations on taking something that was so tremendously uh, tough and hard and challenging and turning it into, you know, hope for others and providing helpful advice and, and guidance to people that really could use it. So you are very much appreciated. And thank you again for joining us on the show. All right. Well, thanks so much, Chrissy. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of HealthWise 360 here on the In the Limelight Podcast Network, where we enlighten, entertain, and educate our listeners. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe, and don't forget to tell your friends.